This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 436. You think about that. People say like, well, I don't have credibility to start a meetup. I can't be the expert. It's like, you don't need to be the expert. Like, you know, you need to be maybe a chapter ahead, right? So you could be a chapter ahead of somebody and add value to them. And that's all we were. We had a business plan for multifamily that we could show brokers. Most people in the room didn't have that. Month two, my partner, who's the spreadsheet guy, did a deal analysis. Well, guess what? Three syndicators showed up. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. David Green. David, welcome to the show, man. How's, uh, how's life? Awesome. Had a great weekend. I'm looking at houses again for myself. So I was out this weekend looking at places to house hack in the hills of the Bay Area and going through all those emotions again about buying a property and getting all excited. I I was out in Hawaii looking at condos and I put one under contract out in your neck of the woods and I'm looking at probably three or four more right now. So I'm like a kid in the candy store once I can start (laughs) buying real estate again. That's awesome, man. I'm excited for you. Uh, Yeah. Once you have a place out here, you can come out every week. You can come out every Monday for our podcast recordings. We typically record on Mondays. Uh, I don't think you will, but that would be, that'd be funny. It's, you have uh, well, we had some technical difficulties today. And so <laughs> it's so frustrating. I might take that five hour flight over trying to figure just, out this thing. Just recording person. I don't think it's a bad idea. Or we just like cram like nine weeks of recordings every nine weeks and just do them all <laughs> in like a two day period, which is actually kind of a cool idea to batch. But anyway, today's show has nothing to do with that whatsoever. So today's show is a, a really fun episode with a buddy of ours named Jamie Gruber. So Jamie is a real estate investor in the uh, Michigan area who went very quickly from like single family to some duplexes to a multi, like larger multifamily or midsize, you could call them midsize apartment complexes. And that's really what today's journey, this story is about, is how you don't have to stay small forever. You can scale up pretty quickly if you use the right tools. Specifically, he talks a lot about networking. Because what I know it's like a, a cliche term, networking, but the way that he does it is very unique and something that you could start implementing today. So listen for all of that today. Uh, especially, I love his, we, he, he said this phrase on the show, you're going to hear it later. And we didn't really dive into it, but you're going to hear this theme throughout Jamie's life. He said this, be intentional, get educated, and then take action. Like those three things, be intentional about what you want, get educated about that thing, and then take action. And I just, I love that that reoccurring theme is through every area of his life. You're going to hear that and how you can apply that to yours as well. Now, before we get to the interview, though, let's get to today's quick tip. tip. My quick tip today is call 14 banks today. And now let me expand on that. Jamie tells us a story today in the podcast you're going to hear about how he called 14 banks to get good financing. And the lesson he's trying to teach here, and then I'm going to just, you know, tell you right now, spoiler alert, is that sometimes the best loans don't come until call number 10, 11, 12, 13. And now 14 is an arbitrary number. I'm just having fun with it. But the point is, don't just accept one loan. If you're trying to get started in real estate, like don't just accept one lender. Don't just assume you're going to talk to one bank. Talk to a bunch of them. I know you've done that as well, David, in your life, because different lenders have different products. Yeah, there was a point in my life I showed up to work. I got my stuff done and then I literally just Googled every bank I could find (laughs) in Arizona and just made a huge spreadsheet and just started emailing them all, calling them all. 
uh, like every day for hours at a time, that's what I would do. Because if you want to buy real estate, that's what it takes. And then through that process, you start to figure out, oh, credit unions are much different than banks. That's why these people are offering me things that these people aren't. And that's what you got to do. But you usually only got to do it once. Once you've figured out how to find the right institution, you can just, uh, what's the example that we use? It's like, you're wandering the desert and you find a well. Now you just know to go right to that one well, but you're wandering around with that little, you know, the piece of wood that they hold. Yeah, the, uh, what's it called? The wishing stick or whatever? I don't know. Like the, yeah, you're wandering around like an idiot with one of those things. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever the name of that thing is called, let us know on Instagram at David Green 24 or Beardy Brandon. There you go. What's that name of that stupid stick? It's like you, they walk around. It doesn't actually. It's a witching witching stick. Is that what it's called? I wish I, I knew. It was in like every cartoon or movie I know, we ever yeah. saw as kids. We, uh, whatever. Anyway. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where RentReady steps in. Now, RentReady's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six-month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit RentReady.com. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com and use the code BPINVESTOR. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, like me, to get six months of Rent Ready for $1, which is crazy. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day, plus Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
With that said, let's get to the interview with Jamie. Jamie is an awesome dude. You're going to love this interview. I'm excited to introduce you to our buddy, Jamie Gruber. Here he is. Jamie, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. It is an honor to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's uh, it's incredible to be here. I'm uh, I, I've been a, a longtime fan, so to be here is sort of a sort of a coup for me. I appreciate it, guys. Oh, thanks, man. So tell us where where are you at in the world? So I live now currently in uh, or just north of Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm a, I'm an East Coast guy by birth, I guess. So I lived in New York. I grew up in New York. Lived in Boston for a number of years and moved here about three years ago. So yeah. Midwest. Okay, the Midwest. Yeah, and I think I met you in person, didn't I, in uh, Detroit when I was driving through, right? You did. You did. Yeah. You came up here. You dropped this big, uh, big to do. Like I'm here. Everyone come see me, yeah. and everyone came and saw you. So, yeah, yeah, you know that's that's typically how it goes. You're just like you know, come into a city, and I, I and I want to do a meetup, and I'm like, who's the meetup people? And you're the meetup guy. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later today. That's right. But it's just it's so fun to be able to like when you go travel to a city to meet the real estate investors in that city. Like who's doing business here? Who's doing deals? And again, one of the guys, you and I just hit it off really well there. And so now you're on the podcast. We're talking about your journey and you have not been doing this for 50 years. You don't have 10,000 units, uh, but you got a really cool thing going. And so I want to kind of dig into like, first of all, what do you do for a living? And then how did you get from that into the idea of buying real estate? Sure. Yeah. So my, my day job is I'm in the insurance world, insurance claims. I call myself a claims executive, which just simply means I'm in an equity position, right? So I get stock options, all that stuff, the golden handcuffs as they call them, there right? So. So that's what I've done for almost 21 years now, right out of college. And, uh, and I've been, uh, been with the same company ever since. Moved around a little bit, as I mentioned, New York to Boston to Michigan, taking different positions, bigger positions or whatever the case may be. And really, you know, started investing real estate in, I guess, 2005, but didn't really intentionally invest in real estate until 2017. So a <laughs> bit of a gap between the two. I was an accidental landlord to start and really got intentional about it recently. Accidental landlord, how, how'd that happen? So 2005, for those that, that, that are old enough to remember investing or buying pre-2008, uh, like, you know, yep. I'm getting this promotion at work. I've got a car. I've got the girl. Hey, I got to buy the house. So found a house in this town in upstate New York, Elmira, New York. If there's anybody that knows where that is, it's, it's, it's nowhere. It's a small town. And I remember it was $142,000 to buy this, this beautiful home. And I got on the phone with the bank and the bank was like, yeah, hey, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take 20% as like a, like a home equity line or home equity loan and put that down. And then the other 80% will put in a traditional mortgage and you're, you're going to avoid PMI. And I was like, yeah, yeah, man, get avoid PMI. Like, no idea <laughs> no, what PMI yeah, no. was, but I financed the entire thing. Like, so I bought a $142,000 house with no money out of pocket. In fact, I think I got cash back at closing somehow. And mm -hmm. You know, within a year of that, I, I doubled down and said, hey, you know what? I keep hearing about people refinancing and I refied out to the new value of 149 and they gave me 100% financing for that as well. So life was going great. I had this house. It's 2005, 2006, got the job. What's going to happen? Two, three years, I'll, it'll be worth double. I'll sell it and yeah. here we go, right? Here so we, that's the house I live rich. That's exactly it. So 2008 rolls around. I actually get a promotion. I moved to Boston. And the one thing I couldn't do at that point was sell my house. And I even had a, a relocation package, which gave me a $25,000 loss on sale provision. Like in other words, if you sell the house for 25,000 less than you bought it for, we'll pay that difference. Go ahead and move. Couldn't get rid of it. Could not sell the house for the life of me. So what's the next thing you do? You put a renter in there. Yeah. The good thing at that time was this uh, hydraulic fracturing. Well, good, depending on how you feel about it, I guess. But this, <laughs> this natural gas uh, mining thing was starting to explode. It was big in Pennsylvania. This town is right on the Pennsylvania border. Companies were moving in, expecting New York to leak, to allow it. So I, my rent was like hundreds of dollars more than my, my expenses. I was, I was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. I'm making a couple hundred bucks a month. I've got this house. Somebody else is paying the debt off. It's all good. 
But then a couple of years later, as things dragged on or whatever with the state, they decided, you know what, we're not going to allow this fracking, hydraulic fracturing thing to come into New York. So the Halliburtons and Exxons or whoever the world moved out and my rents went went south. So my mm. rent went down to about maybe a little bit more, like 50 bucks more than what I was paying in mortgage taxes and insurance. So I was making no money, probably, you know, anything, something happened, I was spending money, right? So it was, it became an albatross, it became a problem for me. Like, man, this house, this, this burdensome house, I can't stand this thing. It was what it was. So fast forward now, I'm kind of accelerating my career. I'm taking these different roles within the organization to achieve what I'm doing now, this equity level job. It's kind of the, the top of it, right? Yeah. And Along the way, I'm, you know, I'm traveling 45 weeks a year. I'm on a plane, you know, taking Ooh. that job because nobody else would do it, right? Whatever I could do to kind of advance my career. And I start to feel this lacking fulfillment with this approach. Like I, I feel and think that the job I want is going to get me the fulfillment. But somewhere in there, I, looking back now, I'm starting to lose a little bit of traction with my, my desire to kind of continue to do what I was doing. So I, I read again at 24, I read it once and it kind of made sense, but didn't really do anything with it. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I'm like yep. 36, 37 years old. And I was like, oh man, like <laughs> all those now years, all those years. And now I get it. So, so I read that book and then it was like, all right, well, Hey, I got this property. Let me just sort of like refi, make this thing an asset, not only, not only physically, but mentally, like in my mind, make it an asset versus this albatross. And I did that. And then we actively started sourcing additional purchases at that point, made a couple more after that. So that's cool, man. And so at the time, when did you get from New York then to like, was that in 08 is when you moved to 08. Michigan? Late 08. Okay. No, 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 no. I moved from New York to Boston in 08. I moved from I see, Boston okay. to Michigan in 2017. I see. Okay. And so like by the time when you moved there, what was, I guess, what was your next purchase? Where'd you go from? Yeah. yeah the, the, that so I'm one in Boston. House, now you're intentional about it. Yeah, I'm in Boston and you know, I'm listening to this podcast you may have heard about called Bigger Pockets, learning mm -hmm. all about about uh, real estate investing and it was just it just it made sense to me. It, it was fascinating to me. I'm reading, I'm diving in what a lot of people do when they start getting into the real estate investing world. Um, I go to a local RIA meeting in the Boston area and it was great. Got a, you know, met some people, learned some things, but the one thing that became clear for me was like, man, it's hard to invest in this area. Just mm. prices are high cash flow is low. All of the things I had learned on the BP yeah. podcast didn't seem possible there. But I have this house in New York, right? I have this, uh, this house in upstate New York. It's where I'm from. I have family back in that area. So I decide, you know what? Hey, let me look there because it's way more affordable. Rents are pretty good. I can get, we talk about one, 2% rule. I can get two, three, 4% rule in some of these markets. And I found uh, a couple of distressed uh, duplexes I had heard of the Burr method by that point, and I decided, you know what? Perfect. I'm going to I'm going to do that. I'm going to Burr these two properties, got them under contract, and purchase them. I think together I purchased them for 170 combined, and that was kind of the first intentional purchase of real estate. And I did that late 2016. Got the promotion, moved to Michigan in January 2017. So I literally closed in mid, mid January 2017 while living in Boston, and then moved to Michigan about three weeks later. And now I got these properties a flight away in New York versus a four hour drive away in New York. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a couple of things to point out here real quick. Uh, first of all, the fact that you chose New York, I think that's so smart in, in that uh, we talk a lot about unfair advantages. Like when you were looking at where to, where to invest, you had people there, you understood yeah. that area, you knew that market and you're like, Hey, that's going to be my market. Now, just one thing we encourage on the show a lot of times is if you like, where do you have your unfair advantage? I hate the question. Like what's the best market to invest in? Mm -hmm. I'm like the best market to invest in is like the market where you have a team, like where you have, yeah. where the numbers make sense, which is most markets. You can find something that makes sense there. And where you have a team. So, so that's cool. So how did those duplexes go? So the duplexes, we purchased them. You know, we learned a ton. I'll say that. Meaning like we did all right with them. We still own them. We, we, uh, we refied out of them and, uh, and, and 
essentially executed the plan. Eh, maybe not exactly, but for the most part, we executed the plan. But they were great. You know, we had a sewer pipe go. You know, that costs a little bit of money. And it's funny, you talk about the experience you get. The, the first property, the one in New York that I moved from and had yeah. to keep sewer pipe went. So I learned yeah, that's yeah. about a $5,000 deal, right? First estimate for this sewer pipe on this new property was 18 grand. Well, Thankfully, with the experience of the first sewer pipe, it was like, ah, it seems a little steep to me. So got enough estimates to get this at, I think it was like 6,500 or something like that, that we had to replace for. So, but again, not knowing without having done that first property, I think that's something that I learned. Like, man, you just got to do that deal. You got to do that first deal. You're going to lose. No doubt about it. At some point, (laughs) you're going to lose on that first deal. But man, the stuff you gain, the knowledge you gain, the information you gain, understanding what the zoning commission will do if you have flaking paint on your house. I had no idea, right? Like what, how aggressively they come after you to paint the house, how much a sewer pipe is, all of that stuff. So, so the lessons from that first property really served, served us in, in, I guess, optimizing uh, or mitigating expense on those two duplexes as we, as we went through the burr process with those. Yeah, that's really cool. So one of the things you want to make sure when you're getting started, because like you're saying, Jamie, you probably are going to lose money or time or whatever in the beginning, but you don't want it to be a knockout blow. You don't want to end up to where you've lost all your capital. You can't get financing and you're out of the game. Did you do anything specific to mitigate that risk? Sounds like you were kind of mature walking into it, knowing this isn't going to be a home run. How did you make sure that it wasn't something that took you out of the game completely? So we had cash reserves that we lined up ahead of time. So we made sure we had cash reserves. Another thing I did, I don't know if it's the right thing or not, but we put a, we had a lot of equity in our home in Boston. The market there was Mm -hmm. incredible. So we took out a line of credit. We didn't really use it per se, but we took it out just in case something happened. We had access to that, but the cash reserve part was probably the biggest piece for me. And it wasn't like we had tens and tens of thousands of dollars in the bank ready for this, but we had enough to cover what we felt would be some of the issues that could pop up based on what we saw of the property and what we had learned from the first one. I think that's worth pointing out that there is a, what I would call a false sense of security that comes from thinking I have a lot of equity in a property. I'll hear people say, well, if the value drops, I've got this big cushion, but it doesn't really mean anything in practical terms, what your equity is. Can you make the payment is all that really matters. And cash reserves are so much more important when it comes to, can you service that debt than this imaginary equity that can come and it can go. Equity only matters when you're selling a house. If you, if you, if you drop beneath what you owe, you're in trouble. But even if you gain equity, it doesn't mean anything to you unless you're selling. So being able to service that payment, I just wish more people understood you solve most of the things that can go wrong with real estate by having reserves. That's like the best piece of advice. Would you agree that that's why you felt confident enough to go in there and make that move and start your education? hundred percent. You have a cushion. I've got something to fall back on. I had a wife, one kid at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the stakes are higher. It's not just me. I lose. I move back to a one bedroom apartment and it's over. Right. So the stakes were higher and I wanted to make sure I had the right cushion for it. And to your point, I think debt is such an important thing to research and to find the right debt for you. Like we'll talk after this, I went into multifamily and and how debt has been good and bad in that space for me, but specific to this property or those two properties in that town, it's a small town, college town, Mm 20,000 people, but I called 14 banks. And I I, I can't remember if it's revisionist history, if it was bank number 14 that I called or like 12 or 13, but it was late in the game. It wasn't like the first three calls that I made. It was eight, nine, 10, 12, uh, 12 bank that said, Hey, we've got this portfolio product actually, where, you know, we'll do this financing at this term. And it served what I needed for those properties. You know what I mean? Like it gave me everything I needed for those properties. I didn't need a ton of cash down. Like they're their closing costs were were much lower than if I went with a bank that was going traditional Fannie Freddie. I was building a relationship with this bank as well. Uh, so when we refied, we went right back to them and we got terms that we really could, could endure. So to your point, that town is a college town in COVID has not done great. And th- that portfolio for us has been like, you know, we're eking by, we're doing okay, but we're eking by on it right now. 
But the debt, the fact that we got good debt on it is what's, to your point, allowing us to make the payment through this time. And we're starting to see it come back, thankfully now, knock on wood. But yeah, debt is so important. I learned that lesson big time with those two properties. What have you seen, being though that those properties are in New York, I know I've seen in the news a lot, like New York shutting down evictions and not allowing this and that. And like, they've kind of led the charge on the tenant friendly and let's help tenants, which, you know, is good and bad, maybe depends on who you talk to and in what position. But what have you seen, I guess, over the last year? What have your tenants done? Have they been paying rent? Uh, what's life been like there? They have. We had one tenant that negotiated down like a, for three months, we negotiated like a hundred or 200 bucks less rent than she normally would pay because she was impacted by COVID. That was early on. That was probably April, May, June of, of 2020. So we did, we dealt with that. But I mean, for me, we screen our tenants well up front. I think my wife does all of this stuff. So we screen our tenants well up front. You know, we use brokers in the area that have relationships with tenants that they've placed before. People want to pay, you know, in most markets, like there's your professional tenants out there, no doubt. Knock on wood again, we haven't, we haven't come across one yet, but our tenants have paid, they have. The biggest struggle is finding contractors to care some work in that area, but, but tenants have been pretty good. There's a couple tenant laws out there. I think California has one similar that's like capping your, your, your increase in rent that you can you know, yeah. apply every year or whatever. And even that, the cap's like 5% or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, some people look at that and they get out of the market. To me, it's almost like, all right, well, it's kind of like thinning the herd a little bit. So it might be a place to look when, when somebody says, yeah, we're capping it at 5%. It's like, yeah, but I'm not going to raise rents more than probably 3% a year at this point. So it doesn't really hurt me, but I get that the, the feel of it makes people run the other, run the other direction. Yeah. And again, it's what it signals that the state is going to do in the future. They're going to get more and more tenant friendly, but yeah. we've been okay. We've been doing okay with our tenant base. I think screening is important. hundred percent. So you bought a couple duplexes there. And then what did you learn after those deals? That two, two buildings with four units is a lot of work. So, <laughs> and I'd listened again, bigger pockets. I'd listened to some podcasts in the past about multifamily, but they were really intimidating words like syndication, words like capital raising and all that stuff. It was just like, whoa, that's another person's game. Like, I, Isn't that know. funny? I talk about that all the time. They, right. they're, yeah, we're going to get agency debt. Oh, yeah. that sounds really cool. You know, right. a Fannie Mae loan. Yeah. <laughs> There's a ton of ways the multifamily can be made to sound very, very intimidating. Yeah. It can. And it's like anything else. Like when you hear one thing, your mind automatically goes yeah. to, oh my God, what else don't I know? Right. Yeah. There's got to be so much more. It's like, well, no, you didn't know that. You didn't yeah. know that agency debt was Fatty Freddy debt. And now yeah. you know that. So now the next thing you'll learn, we'll, we'll slap you in the face. You'll go, oh, okay, I know that now. So, so anyway, so I, I, I learned about multifamily. I learned that you could do it without the syndication model. Because again, that just felt intimidating to me in that moment. And at this point, I'm in Michigan. So I'm living here. We're managing our properties back in New York. We have five units. I'm feeling like the big dog at the RIA meeting because most people had none. And <laughs> uh, I, uh, I just, you know, I do what I do whenever I get interested in something. I get, I get intentional, I get educated, and then I take action. So got educated by, by finding, uh, actually, I think I heard him on your podcast, uh, uh, Jake and Gino. Love Jake and Gino. The guys are great. Uh, learned a ton from Gino on, you know, what it is to buy multifamily, what it is to buy mom and pop multifamily and, and how to kind of go about that. And all of a sudden the 10 or 12 or 14 unit building didn't sound so intimidating. So the next step was, okay, I want to go this route. I found a partner, somebody that I met through uh, a mastermind that I had joined. We had very, very similar uh, ambitions, goals, a completely opposite or complementary skill sets. Like I'm more, you know, the outgoing I'll go network. I'll do all of that. He's more, give me a spreadsheet in a dark room in a basement and I'm happy kind of guy. So we complement each other really, really well, but found a partner that, that we could offset each other's weaknesses, if you will. And we started looking for multifamily. Uh, and that proved much, much harder than, uh, than we thought it would because, you know, 
multifamily, the, the structure around multifamily, like the multifamily broker or agent is a very different beast, not in a bad way, but just a very different beast than your residential agent, right? You go to a residential agent, you got a buyer's agent, you got a seller's agent, you know, one's working with you, one's working with the seller. Maybe you, maybe they're, they're, they're doing dual agency, but, but in the multifamily world, like brokers own the game, they have four people that buy from them and that's who they're going to continue to go to. So by the time you see a deal, it's been filtered through two, three different lists if you're new to the game. Uh, and that was a big learning for me going into yeah. that space. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor, to get six months of Rent Ready for $1. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes. And there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. What else have you found? You know, we're going to get into your multifamily here in a second, but what else have you found challenging jumping from like the small deals into the larger multifamily? 
definitely, like I said, the broker piece was the biggest thing. And that's where we we created a meetup to get around that. I'll explain that in just a minute okay. here. But the biggest, the biggest thing was that, you know, there's, there's a mindset component to it as well, I think that goes into it. So I think people just get intimidated, like I said before about, and I did by, okay, wow, this big multifamily. Oh my God, how much money? A million dollars? That's a million bucks. How am I going to spend a million dollars on a property? So I think it's honestly more just limiting beliefs and mindset more than anything. And then uh-huh. tactically, definitely for us, it was more more the broker side of things, just trying to find brokers that would take you seriously when you're what you think is experienced. Hey, I got five doors, right? But yeah, you're not multifamily experienced. Yeah. So trying to break through with them can be difficult. That was my biggest, my biggest challenge. So how do you, how do you overcome that? You know, you got to take, you got to take action, right? Like I, I wanted to be a multifamily investor. That was what I wanted to do. So the traditional route was we put together a business plan. We went and had lunch with brokers, paid for lunch. They were blown away by the business plan, which was great. Oh, wow. Most people are tire kickers. They don't even bring us this. They just come and say, yeah, I don't know. I'd like to buy, I'd like to buy a small apartment building. So the brokers uh, that we met with would, would say all the right things and tell us, yeah, hey, great. I'll clear on your criteria. I'll send you guys stuff as it comes up. But then we wouldn't get that. We would either get something that's way outside our criteria or we'd get the thing that I just saw on LoopNet the other day. Like, no, that's you're not sending me that. I see that. That's there. Like, I've already looked at that. That's not a good deal for us to to invest in. So my partner and I were talking about this, like, well, what do we do here? Because we want to get we want to break into this market. I've gone to some meetups. I didn't love the meetups. Some of them were more like the meetup was the business more than the meetup was a value add. I I ran Mm, into that quite a bit, actually. So. And we looked and saw like, I bet one guy that was in multifamily at one meetup, like one guy had lunch with them and then nothing kind of came of it. But of the 40 people there, there was one other guy who had interest in multifamily. Everybody else wants to wholesale or flip or whatever, which is great. So for us, it was like, look, there's no multifamily meetups around here. So one of two things, either someone's tried it and nobody wants to go to a multifamily meetup, so it's failed or no one's done it yet. So we put together a meetup and we actually called it multifamily and more because we were like, well, if it fails on the multifamily, we got more. <laughs> we could talk about more stuff. We could get into other things and not let That's the meetup funny. die in the first month. So we, look, we put it out on meetup.com. We created a little Facebook group, but nobody was in there at that point. And first meetup, we had you know, a friend of ours loaned us an, uh, a conference room in a, in a local office. And we had like 15 people show up and all of them were there for multifamily. So Again, we didn't have any multifamily property at this point, but it was yeah. it was for us just a way of kind of creating a community. And what we thought was, hey, let's create ourselves as a face in this market around multifamily. Let's be known for that. That'll we can get brokers to take us seriously, or or whatever the case may be. So that was the plan. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, you know, I just I was reading this weekend, and I put it on my Instagram, Beardy Brandon. If you want to follow me, uh, I put on my Instagram story this like five page section from Tim Ferriss's book, The Tools of Tools of Titans. And Tools of Titans is kind of like a summary of a lot of his podcast guests, but then also like he pulls out just like these like lessons and and things that throughout the book. Anyway, and he had this whole section on. I can't remember what it was called, basically like being a category king or like creating your own category. Yeah. And what he basically said is rather than being like, like following what everyone else does, you just kind of create your own category and you become the thing. And he even jokes in there about how like the term lifestyle design, he invented that term in the four hour work week. And then that became a thing that everybody knows. And it made me laugh too, because like we did that with Burr and house hacking, like we coined those terms here, bigger pockets and they became things because there were categories that didn't really have names. They didn't have a thing. You did the same thing with multifamily there. You're like looking around, you're like, well, there's a lot of meetups. And if I just go start a meetup, I'm going to be one of a hundred other meetups in the area or on you know thousands online of meetups. How can I be different? How can I be the only one in a category? So you created a brand new category called multifamily meetups and you're like, I'm, we're the best multifamily meetup because you're the only one multi, like 
I'm right. sure there's now more, right? So I love are, that from yeah. a marketing aspect is if you can do that. We did that with our real estate fund. Like I raised a lot of money in our fund. We That's we right. don't have just a fund. We have a cash growth fund. What's a cash growth fund? It's a fund that gives you cash flow starting from day one and long-term appreciation options through forced equity. Now that's a term I invented, cash growth. It didn't exist before I I put that word together. I put a little trademark on it now and it's like, hey, that's my term. But now all of a sudden people are like, oh, he's got a cash growth fund. Like rather than taking two sentences or a paragraph to explain what we do, I'm now like the category king of that category. This is what we do. We we do syndicating properties that provide cash flow from day one and appreciation options. You know, it's like it's from a marketing standpoint, I love that. So let's dig into that a little bit because again, I think you're a very good marketer and you understand this stuff. So Sure. What did that multifamily and more meet up? Like, what has that done for you? Where's it at today? I'm guessing it brought you leads at some point. Oh boy. Every, so I've done two multifamily deals and we're working on our third right now, actually. Uh, and all of it has come from our community, our communities. So yeah, mm. it started out, it started out as, okay, Hey, we want to go in there and we want to, we want to you know, be the face of multifamily. So we'll be taken seriously. And every month it kind of grew and we adapted like, Hey, it's, this isn't the right location. Let's go to this location. Ah, this isn't quite the right location either. Let's go to this location. And that what the content was and, you know, at those meetups and how it flowed and all of that, like we we, I feel have perfected it. And I can get into that if we have time. But yeah, from there, uh, people in masterminds that I was a part of, because I'm a big believer in, in being part of communities that are of like-minded people. So we're all, we, we've talked, we're all part of abundance, right? Like that's yeah. a community that resonates with me. So guys and gals and masterminds that I, I was a part of said, hey, I'm in multifamily. Like there's no meetups in my area too. Like, how'd you do it? How did you create it? So I literally wrote like a two-page document of like every step. Like, here's what I did on meetup.com, step-by-step. Here's how I got people to come to Facebook. Here's how I created my meetup. Here's how I found a venue and just kind of wrote it all out. And we started creating chapters, like nothing official, just like, yeah, hey, let's let's do a chapter here and a chapter there. And we had three or four of them at that point and started growing it out, you know, growing it, growing it, I should say. Uh, today, we have 21 chapters, about 10,000 members across the Facebook groups. Wow. And yeah, we're in all corners of the country. But to that point, the third month of our first meetup, a couple came to us, a married couple and said, hey, look, we, we, we love what you're doing here. We've got this eight unit under contract. There's actually 16 units. It's two eight-unit buildings in a community. Like any interest in kind of partnering up and buying this thing, and that ended up being our first deal. Then later on, we bought another deal with the guy and gal who run our Cleveland group. So, so yeah. So the the meetup itself, the brand, the multifamily and more uh, experience, if you will, has been huge for me. So once you got rolling with your meetup, what do you feel like you did well that made yours sort of pass the competition and made it more attractive for people to join and be uh, contributing to? There's a few things. So. I think the things I did well were that we were consistent. So uh, here's what I'll say. I think that when, when you create a meetup or when you're starting out in the networking space, like the first thing you have to do is set the intention to add value. That wasn't my intention going in. My intention going in was to get brokers to help me, (laughs) right? Like that was my intention. So we went to our first meetup again, mind you, we had no multifamily and here we are the multifamily meetup people. And we figured out how to be credible in that space. But the first thing I learned was, man, when we go into these meetups and we seek to add value, huge. That's a big, big piece of what we need in order to attract the kind of people that we want in our universe. And then the second thing, I thought we did a really, really good, good job of building our online presence. So for me, you know, a meetup is a meetup. And there are a billion of them on meetup.com where you meet once a month, you go out, you see people, and then you come home. Even if you're running that meetup, that's the exposure you get to them. But I've heard and I've learned this from a few different people that, you know, I think it takes like six or seven interactions with somebody for them to know, like, and trust you enough for them to invest with you, partner with you, or whatever it is you're trying to do to accelerate your real estate investing career. Well, if I'm only going to go to a meetup 
every month. It's going to take me six, seven, eight months if I go consistently and the same people are there for me to find the kind of people that I know, like, and trust. And for those people to know, like, and trust me for me to go through with my real estate career. So I'm already, you know, seven, eight months out from the people I need in my world. If all I do is a monthly meetup. So the other piece to this was how do we build a community? So where we started people out on meetup, we would move them over to our Facebook group and really pour into them there with virtual meetups. Brandon, you were a guest at one point on our virtual meetup where, you know, people who don't normally have access to you on a webinar would have access to you to ask you questions. Incredible value add for for a lot of folks. We had a ton of people show up for that. So building our brand online and leveraging the Facebook group as a community has been, I think, the biggest piece of, of our success. Like we're really good. There are, I think there are 10 million in Facebook groups and there's 1.5 billion people in Facebook groups right now. So to stand out, you got to be yeah. good in those Facebook groups, period. You can't, you can't be run of the mill. You can't do what everybody else does. You've got to be intentional, uh, involved, consistent, engaged. You've got to delete and, and remove people when they're, when they're hurting the group. You have to look at it like it's your home and this is a party and people are coming into your home that you're that you're hosting. And if somebody ran into your home and said, hey, 5% interest, uh, no experience needed. I'll give you 100% financing. Meet me in the yeah. bathroom, right? Like yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't hang out with that or you'd want them <laughs> to get out of my house. But you see it all the time. PM me yeah. if you want this, that and the other. Yeah. Like we kick that riffraff out yep. and we make it about the community. I think that is by far the biggest piece of what has made our brand successful. That same thing is what made Bigger Pockets Bigger Pockets today. If you look back in 10, 15 years of Josh, like when he first started Bigger Pockets, it was like, I mean, he got threatened to be sued by multiple, like p- many people who just got angry. People were like, like threatening him, like, you know, come to his house and beat him up, like all sorts of stuff because he would kick people out for yeah. violating the rules. And he's like, you guys, this is my house. This is my thing. Like, we want a safe space that you're not going to get pitched. You're not going to get felt like every time you come to the site, you're just going to be like, hey, Join my, you know, $50,000 training course or whatever the, the, the thing they're trying to sell or I can get you, you know, you know, yeah, the, the private loan stuff, the wholesale stuff. Like there's a time and place for marketing and for and for deal making. And my guess is that somewhere in your meetup, you have a place that you, you somehow allow people to work together, at least like in the networking. We do. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just it's about being respectful of that. So when you go to an, a situation like you're on the Bigger Pockets forums or you're in your your Facebook group knowing what the rules are for the thing is so important. And then also if you're going to start your own, which I think everyone should definitely consider doing is how can you be the leader of a community Mm -hmm. Uh, by doing that? Yeah. You have to be that strict. You have to have those those strict guidelines and rules. Otherwise it just becomes one of the many other Facebook groups I've been part of that just you leave because they just be overrun with spam. Spam. Yeah. There's a lot of shares. I hate shares. I mean, I have a place, I guess, but whenever I see somebody share something that they posted elsewhere and it depends on the, look, not, not being funny. If it's you two in a Facebook group who are (laughs) are niche famous, well, let's be honest, you're, you know, you're, you're known in this space, Mm. niche famous. I've heard that somewhere. Maybe it was you. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Uh, But if it's you guys posting a share, well, that's, that's a different kind of content, but you know, regular Joe locally or whatever that shares something that they put everywhere else. That's just, that's like sending yeah. somebody over with a flyer to your house again with that same reference yep. and saying, "Hey, so and so sends his regards." Like, great, get out of here, thanks, yep. but uh, but there's no reason for you to be here. So that community is big. I'll give you a quick quick story on on the point about about uh, like my community. So I think people are people first and investors second. So my my content or the stuff that I put out there is often like, "Hey, what are the weekend plans for people?" Or, "Hey, if you could be a food, what would it be?" Stuff like that. people have fun yeah. with it, right? They comment and it creates community. That's my objective. Yeah is to create community, not yep. just an investor class, but community. So one guy stuck a deal in, in, the, in the group, and we have a space for that. Every Wednesday, here's a post, put your deal in the comments. Everybody can go find it, right? We put hashtags on it, really clean. Yep. 
somebody dropped the deal in there. I deleted it and I got that same thing. No death threats or anything, but uh, <laughs> hey, look, you could put, you know, what you have for Thanksgiving dinner, but I can't put a deal in there. I'm like, no, man, that's my brand. That's yeah. my community. This is what we do here. So I appreciate your deal, but there are a zillion other Facebook groups where you can drop that deal and, and people will find it if they want to. But what makes our community thrive is that we're people first uh, before we're investors. That's so good. How did you navigate COVID during the meetups? Did you guys stop meeting? Did you go online? What, what did you do? Went online. So I actually took a course so I could learn how to, how to have more effective Zoom meetings, right? Because it was, it was like, again, I wanted to add value. So I went through and I learned a bunch of stuff, little things like, like as simple as uh, movement on a screen. Like everybody, you know, you start a Zoom meeting, we're all on Zoom yep. right now. You just sort of sit here like, hey, what's going on? It's good yep. to see. You. But you can pipe music through Zoom. That's a good way to start a meetup off. You know, you mm-hmm. can have people do things like, hey, what's on your desk that's important to you and have them show the screen. They're interacting, right? Their, their hands are moving. You know, there's, they say like the camera adds 10 pounds. It also takes like 30% of your energy. It away, does. Right? So, I say that all the time. Yeah, it's totally true. So, so if you're like flashing like water bottles, it's, it's yep. all of a sudden you're watching a screen full of engagement instead of a bunch of heads sitting there. So we did, we pivoted to, to virtual and we were doing a component of virtual before. So we're a little bit ahead of our time, not expecting COVID. There's no genius here, but it was another touch point for us. Like we meet every month in person and we meet virtually like second Wednesday and, and in person fourth Wednesday of every month. Hey, Jamie, what's something on your desk right now that's meaningful? My stapler. <laughs> I can staple right. my lips shut when my wife is telling me I'm talking. There much. you go. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> all right. So let's go back to the real estate deals. I love the conversation on networking. We could talk there all day, but I want to know more about these deals that you bought. So the first the multifamily you got came from someone in your group. What was that deal? So a 16 unit deal. We purchased it with traditional financing, if you will. So from a, uh, with a credit union. And when we bought it, I could get into this now or I can, I could do it more in the deal. Deep dive is up to you. It's uh, well, how do you want to? Uh, you said it. Let's go to the deal, deal, deep dive. dive. <laughs> Thanks for bringing us there, Jamie. This sure, is the part of the show where we dive deep into one particular deal that you've done. Sure. So uh, we got a lot of D's here. So let's go into it. <laughs> Number one. What kind of deal was this and where was it located? What, yes. what type of property? 16 unit property. So two eight unit buildings, about two blocks for one another. And it's in a town called Pinckney, Michigan. So it's like a bedroom community to Ann Arbor. People have heard of Ann Arbor because of the University of Michigan. So outside of Ann Arbor and real quick, it's actually part of a 32 unit community that the sellers sold half to one seller at one point and half to another seller at another point. So we own 16 of the 32 and they're not next to each other. Like we own this one and this one. And another person owns the other one next to us on one block and the other one next to us on the other block. So Okay. Right, weird. Different. How'd you find this deal? So at the meetup, this couple, like I said, brought us the deal. We worked with them on the on the eight units that they had under contract and then worked on the other eight units with them as well. Can we talk about this real quick? Or I, I want to just bring up this point. It's interesting that they wanted to work with you. Despite you having no multifamily experience, you've done, I mean, you've got the duplexes, right? And yeah. that house. But like, it's interesting how because you were the host of the meetup, you were the community organizer you have a level of trust and credibility that just because you have the ability to organize people, people come to you and bring deals to you. Isn't that fascinating? Like it is so p- people who are, part, yeah, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. The other part too is I'd be like, you think about that. People say like, well, I don't have credibility to start a meetup. I can't be the expert. It's like, you don't need to be the expert. Like, you know, you need to be maybe a chapter ahead, right? So you could be a chapter ahead of somebody and add value to them. And that's all we were. We had a business plan for multifamily that we could show brokers. Most people in the room didn't have that. Yeah. Month two, my partner, who's the spreadsheet guy, did a deal analysis. Well, guess what? Three syndicators showed up. So my partner <laughs> sweat bullets. Like, ah, what am I going to do? But we turned it into a discussion, right? These syndicators helped my partner and me awesome. and everybody in the room kind of kind of develop what this should look like. 
But yeah, you know, for those that are thinking like, oh, can I do this or whatever? I think there's uh, two decisions you can make. You can either be the knowledge. And in some aspects, I am when it comes to some level of multifamily that I have experience with or anything with mindset. I'm a mindset junkie in that regard. I can be the knowledge. So I can create content as the knowledge or I can broker the knowledge, which is what I do with my meetups. I bring in people that know a lot more than me and let them provide their knowledge to add value to the community. All I'm doing is facilitating and brokering it at that point. That's so good. So good. I like that broker in the knowledge. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's like clever, that. right? Yeah, I, it's clever. I like that. Probably the hidden value in what you're doing, Jamie, that maybe those who haven't gotten started, haven't realized it yet is you're pulling back the curtains and you're letting people see into your life. It's that simple. Yeah. You, when you go to a thing like this and you get to know somebody, you're removing all the elements of distrust by letting them get to know your personality, which makes yep. you more likable, which makes people want to work with you. It really is that simple. It's the introverted people like me who don't like meeting new people. It's expensive to be that way because my little circle of people that know me really, really like me. They trust me a lot. We're very close. But everyone that looks at me from the outside says the same thing. That guy always looks angry. I don't really like, he's kind of scary. I don't, they're not going to bring me the deal is what I'm getting at. They're going to go right to Brandon and like, Hey, Brandon, please take my money. (laughs) So for those people that like to meet with people, or even if you don't, it, it's a good business skill to have is what I'm getting at. There's always a distrust with someone you don't know. And if you can remove that, it makes it much easier for people, the universe, whatever, to bring you those opportunities. I think, Brandon, didn't you get your first multifamily deal talking to people at church and just telling yeah. everybody what you wanted? Yeah, my first apartment was uh, from an <clears throat> older couple at my church who I just it was like, I want to buy an apartment someday. And they're like, weird, we have one. And then and you're I, very charming. They probably liked you. They're like, hey, we can help this guy out. We can get him started in the game. Jamie, there was well, probably an element of that too that was happening with you. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, people probably heard that story of my, my, that first property. I don't know if I've ever actually said this is that first apartment where I mentioned to the people at church, I did not convince them to sell to me. I did not. I like when they first told me they had an apartment for sale, like I never tell the full story, but basically I was like, Oh, that's great. You have an apartment. Cool. Have a good day. And like, that was about it. Right. Like I wasn't like, okay, sell me your property. Let me tell you, I'm going to make you this offer. I can do this. I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's great. Oh, lucky you guys. And like, it took a year of them convincing me to buy their property, not the other way around. It took us a year to fit because I had all these limiting beliefs of I'm only, you know, 24. I don't have any money. I don't know what I'm doing. I got no experience. And like one by one, the guy helped me work through it. Now, why would he do that? Like, why, why would he, why would he fight to have me buy his property? Because he liked me. Knows like, like he, and trust you. Yeah, he, he liked and trust me. Exactly. Like he knows, like, and trust. And you get those things and people will fight to give you their deal oftentimes because they want, he wanted me to have it. I, I don't know. I think sometimes like people put people like us, like, you know, three of us and others who lead groups on a pedestal is like, oh, they know what they're doing. They've always known what they're doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. most. I still don't know what I'm doing half the time. Like, yeah. it's just like, I have a loud mouth and I talk and like, and people know, like, and trust me. And you, that though is enough. So get yeah, people to know I can trust you. Absolutely. And to that point too, like what you find is, is, you know, you start to like, I've been able to network with you and some of the bigger multifamily names out there. Like they're in my phone now, right? I could call, I mentioned yeah. Gino, I could call Gino with a question. So by, by being the lead of this and adding value, you start to attract these folks doing things at another level into your world. And they become my mentors. They become people yeah. that I can rely upon when I need information. So. So well, good. that's the thing you learn when you watch them do something, you go, Oh, I had no idea. That's all it took. That's all I got to say. You know, that's just, there's, that happens so often in all of our lives. I will admit this a couple of years ago, I didn't know that there was only like four kinds of business entities. You've got an S corp, a C corp, an LLC, maybe another one. I thought there was like 400. 
just in the back of my head, I always assume like there's a billion ways. Like, how could I figure out which of the 400 to do? And you know, when you talk to CPAs, they're not the easiest to understand. No. And then one day we were talking and it clicked. I'm like, wait, that's all? There's only four things I got to learn. There's a right. couple differences between them. I can't believe I spent this much time being that intimidated. So yeah. for everybody listening to these talks, we're not that much different than you. We just hear more stuff from people that have already done it. And that information is passed along. Yeah, yeah 100%. that's a good point. All right, next question of the deal deep dive. How much was the property? Would you pay for it? So we paid seven fifty five, seven hundred fifty five thousand for the sixteen units. All right. And how did you negotiate that price? So, the, like I said, the eight unit was already negotiated ahead of time. We had a conversation with the owner. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of exactly how it took place, but they, I think we were at his lawyer's office. We talked about the second building. He wanted a little bit more because those other two buildings I mentioned had sold in the meantime. So, like he saw what his old neighbor got. And, uh, and said, ah, you know, I got to do a little bit better on the second building. So we found a price that we felt was, was reasonable, but he, he locked in on the first one, older guy. He was unfortunately failing, had failing health as did his wife. So he was like, look, I gave you my word on the first building. It wasn't actually signed under contract, but he had, he essentially committed to this price. We, we kind of uh, went to the second building and said, yeah, Hey, look, willing to pay up to X, which once you dollar kind of cost averaged them out, the two buildings together at seven fifty five, it ended up being like 47,000 a door. It was well within our range of purchase at that point. So it was a pretty easy negotiation from that perspective. I would venture to say the fact that he liked you caused him yeah. to want to honor his word more and knew you. It's no. easy to break your word to a person on the other side of a transaction when there's two agents between you. That's yep. not a human being, but it's different when you know that person and you're going to have to see them. That's later. why I always try to find ways to get myself into every transaction. Like forget the agent. You're like, so smart. I was just, yeah. so I'm looking to buy a house for myself right now. I'm looking at house hack. And I was telling my buyer's agent, Johnny, who I have representing me, I want him talking to the other agent, but I want to be getting to know the seller. Yep. And he was he was giving this really good description or the strategy to the listing agent that I had given him and said, hey, here's what we're going to do. And I was like, I, I told him that's never going to work because that is way too much information to make it to the seller. You think you're talking to the agent, you're not. The agent is a filter to get to the person who's the decision maker. And Brandon, you're so good at just like bypassing all that, getting through the firewall and getting right into their hard drive and like, Boop, I'm just going to upload this right here. You're going to love me. And I just made myself $100,000. That's funny. Well, that's but yeah, awesome. that's, that's exactly what you're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, relationships absolutely matter in this business. And uh, and to your point, right? Uh, our partners having gotten to know this guy in advance did a great job of setting him up. And as a team, we kind yep. of brought that home with. We did what we said what we would do. We showed up when we said we would show up. You know, we 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 closed when we said we would close. Right? All of that happened, and I uh, I, th I think trust is a huge component of that. That's a good uh, tip if you're trying to buy something. Uh, make yourself a person to the, the sellers on the other side. Yep. Do whatever you can to make it personal to where there's an emotional connection. And they think if I don't do this deal or if I back out of this deal, it's going to affect another family as opposed to it's just, I got to sign a paper saying I want to cancel the contract or whatever. Yeah. And that was a mistake I made as far as like the, tr I almost violated trust with this, with this seller, because when I met him and I'm talking to him, we had this idea of seller financing, like, Hey, maybe we could do this. And I pitched him on it. To your point, Brandon, I pitched him as opposed to listening to him and his needs. And he was fine. We didn't end up doing it. It wasn't like a long drawn out thing. It was like a two minute awkwardness, but I could feel myself like, ugh, like I'm pitching this guy. Like I'm literally coming after him. Like, here's what it benefits you. Here's this. Here's, I just gave him like this buffet of benefits and didn't listen to him. And I've learned my lesson on that. Just, Hey, what's yeah, his need? Point. What does he have to have to get out of this? And then can I work within that? And if I can, great, then, then deals are made. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So how did you go about funding this property? 
So we put each 55,000 in. That was for down payment, closing, due diligence, as well as a, a reserve account. So four people bought the property, me and my business partner, and then this, this married couple, $55,000 each in. And you know that was cash. And my partner and I said, hey, let's, let's test some private money here because we really hadn't done that before. So we took like a $50,000 private money note from somebody in a mastermind, right? That would you know kind of invest with us and we gave them a guaranteed return. So we went that way with it, got a credit unit to finance it. And the terms were tough. They were like, it was like 20 years, 6% at that point. This is about a uh, late 2018, so two years ago at this point. 6% interest, 20-year financing. It, was, it wasn't the best financing, but like, like my partner Ben and I always say, but it got us our first deal. So it was, it was great financing in that regard. So that's how we did. That's how we, we funded it with some capital, some private money, and then just with traditional bank financing. All right. So it was 220 all in. Did that cover just the down payment or did that cover some of your rehab costs too? Yeah, it, it created the reserve account for rehab and everything else. Yeah, we had like a roof to put on and some other stuff that we wanted to do. So it gave us a reserve account. Okay, all right. awesome. So what did you do with it once you bought it? So we had a, a repositioning strategy where we thought we could get rents from an average of, uh, I think it was 578. So the, the renters had been there since like 99 to 2008 kind of thing, like had started their leases then, and they had not moved. Like their rents were the same from 1999 or 2008 or whatever the case would be. So tons of upside. So we saw it as, okay, 578 is the average rent. We think we can get average rent up to $700. And these are all one bedroom except for two, which the prior owner actually marketed still as one beds because he didn't want kids in there. He just wanted like quiet, retired people in there. So we only called them all one bed. So we're like, well, all right, there's two, two beds. There's a little bit of a find there and yeah. then we can move rents. So the first thing we did was we went in and we saw where we could again add value, right? So it wasn't like, great, new owner, here's the new rent. It was what maintenance issue do you have? A faucet, a toilet, whatever. We'll take care of that. No problem. We went in and we cleaned up the common areas. We did some landscaping. We made the place look nice. And then we came to them with leases at that point. And our strategy was because there were zero leases in place to stagger them. So we did some three-month leases, some six-month leases, some nine-month leases, some 12-month leases so that when they renewed for a year, we had leases staggered. We don't want to sign a bunch of 12-month leases in. April. And then next April, the entire building comes up for renewal. So yeah. we staggered that a bit. Today, we, so we are well past $700 per door. In fact, we just rented a unit for $925 wow. that was previously rented when the guy lived there before, when we bought it for $575. And we, we had a, what we did was we set a price for current residents that we would move them all to. I think it was like $675. Every resident goes to $675 from wherever they are right now. And then new tenants, we brought it at market and we just kept testing it. Uh, $695. 725, 745, 795, 850, 925. Yeah. So, wow. so it's kind of gone up and up. And, but in August, before this 925 rent, we actually refinanced. The original partner said, Hey, we're good. We kind of want to, we kind of want to go. So we refinanced and bought them out with the refi proceeds. And uh, my partner and I own the building together now. But the refi cool. was, you know, 25 years, 2.99% interest. I mean, we, we caught it at the right time. So we got really, really good debt, which matters. Our, our, Debt went up like 300 grand, but our payment went down like 500 a month or something like that. So That's you had me thinking about that, Jamie, when you were discussing that the financing wasn't great is I realized you, it's easy to think that the loan and the house are the same thing. Okay. Yeah. I'm buying a house and this is my payment. The house doesn't go anywhere. The loan can be changed. You yeah. can get into a deal with bad financing. In fact, I do that kind of frequently bad being like compared to the market. Sure, okay. Sure. Not like bad for me personally. Yeah. This is a much higher interest rate than other people are paying this is a five-year balloon payment situation, but I've secured an asset that I really like that I got under market value, that cash flows, whatever. The financing is can just be improved. The house doesn't change. Don't make the mistake if you're listening to this of thinking that your loan and the house are all one in the same. 
Yeah. The, the loan is a vehicle to get the property and it can be changed. I'm okay to go in at 7% interest, get the place stabilized and then refinance into 3.875 or something like that. And I think there's a lot of people that hear, oh, 7% interest, I'll never do it. Or it only makes this much money. And they just get stuck on that way of thinking because you did it exactly right. You did what you had to do to get your foot in the door. Then when your foot was in there, you wedged the rest of your leg in and you turned it into a really good deal. So I think that's we, a great story. Yeah, no, thank you. We saw a really clear upside, right? This was an obvious upside situation. Rents were severely low. And even now we're probably sitting on, because we still have a lot of the original renters, 1500 a month loss to lease, right? Like as far as what the potential full leases, and that's not even at that 925. Like, I don't know if we'll get that again. That might've been yeah, one yeah. renter we found, who knows? So that's not even at projecting at that rent level, right? So yeah, our loss to lease is still pretty good. It's still $1,500-ish conservatively per month. So yeah, to your point, yeah, securing the asset became I don't want to say all we wanted, but we wanted to get yeah, decent. Is your property. priority? It was a big priority, and we figured out some way, any way, to get the property that was that was tenable for us, that we could deal with it. Yeah, and, and financing is also largely dependent on the condition of the property at the time you're trying to get the financing, or the yeah. condition of your own finances. So you can use financing, get worse financing on a property that's not as good, or even if you have credit issues or debt to income uh, issues, whatever. When those improve, your financing options improve as well. Yeah. So. And what I, what I love about multifamily too, commercial generally, is that you can bring in the people that fill those gaps for you. You there don't you have go. good credit. Yes. You can bring in a partner yes. with yep. credit. It's very different from residential in that regard, where you are what they're what they're looking at, what the bank is looking at. They're looking at the asset in commercial and the team. The like, do they have all the components we need? I mean, within reason, you can't have 40 people on a 10-unit deal, but do you have all the all the components that you need? Uh, you have credit, you have experience. And and to that point, this this group, this couple that came to us. I did have experience. I had five units, so I could list that. That first property that I hated way back when gave yep. me enough experience for the bank to say, okay, experience is in the equation now. So we're rolling. <laughs> and, and since your goal with almost anything that you're buying is to improve its value in some way, and multi, in multifamily, that's usually improving the NOI. Yep. Financing get better terms, which are based on the way that the property is performing, is sort of a byproduct of what you're already doing. It's not a whole nother thing of work you have to do. You already did it. Now, boom, just throw the cherry on top. Now, when we refi, we get better terms because we made the property worth more and it's cash flowing harder. So, yeah, I, I noticed that financing seems incredibly easier for commercial in general than in residential. I think Brandon's probably sitting inside, like, yes, because yeah. we know what it's like when I'm trying to, I told you I'm trying to buy a house. There's like, 38 mortgage statements that I have to get together and property tax things to show they're paid. And it's just absolute hell trying to get that done. You go to buy a property and it's like relatively painless when it's commercial. As long as you're honest on a personal financial statement, yep. it gets you a long way. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing this. What lessons would you say you learned from this deal? So I think the first one was, you know, and I learned it thankfully before we we did it, but we were ready to go in like rents are low, go. But, you know, the first lesson we learned early on was these are people first, like this is their home. Hmm. So going in with that softer approach of, hey, look, let's let's go in and take care of some issues. Let's get to know these folks before we all of a sudden jack rents on them. We'll be very clear, like, yeah, look, we're, we're looking at if the rents are low, we're looking at what they're going to be if they ask, and all of them asked, great, new owner, how much more are you charging me? That was like the first thing they said when we opened the door. Mm -hmm. But we brought them, you know, a little care package. We were good to them. So I think people first, add value first in any component. We talked about that in networking, but I think it's just as important when you acquire an asset and there are people in it, right? It's, it's an asset to you, it's home to them. So making sure that you add value to them, that was one big lesson. The second one was, and I forget who I talked to, but it was an investor that I had a conversation with in advance, but just making sure you have a really, really, really good operating agreement. We did. We ended up having a good operating agreement. Our partnership dissolved very, very amicably. We agreed on a price. We, you know, we wished each other really well, and it was never contentious. It was never, never 
bad. They're good people. Yeah. We still keep in touch now. But uh, the operating agreement, I think, was was central to that. And we That's were ready so to go important. in with kind of a boilerplate off a Google operating agreement. And mm. I forget who it was. It was somebody in GoBundance. I forget who it was that I talked to. And he said, hey, look, so let me just run this scenario by you with your current operating agreement that you're about to sign. What if this, that, and the other happens? Then what do you do? I'm like, I, I don't know. So he's mm. like, maybe you want to upgrade, You know, find an attorney, get a good operating agreement in place. So I think that was another big learning for me. Yeah, there are things that you can skimp out on a little bit and there are things you should not. And I think that's a good one, especially if you're going with partners. Like, yeah, operating agreements are something that's very, very important. It just, it manages, it's all about managing expectations. Like yeah. operating, operating agreement doesn't matter if everything goes perfect, like really yep. much, but it matters when things go wrong, which things always go wrong. So yeah, it was well called an expectations agreement. That's right, yeah, right, what right. it, and that's why everyone that has one has a good experience. It's not that the operating agreement was magic. It's that it forced expectations and conversations to be had about what they were brought up to the surface. And that's really the key to good relationships. It's seriously yeah. just understanding what expectations you can have. Yeah, yeah. we didn't know these, the, our partners, right? Before, like really, we got yeah. to know them, but you know, we knew we shared values. They're high value people. They're very good people. And they, it wasn't the plan for us yeah. to buy them out after, after a year and a half. The plan was to refi, take the proceeds, buy another one. Well, we just bought the other eight units essentially. But for them, they had an opportunity and they wanted to run with it. And it made sense for all of us to kind of go forward with it. But to your point, being clear on what our, our mm-hmm. arrangement was, I think is key. That's good, man. Well, that was the end of the deal deep dive. Now I want to move into the second deal deep dive here. No, we won't go as deep, but I'm wondering what was the next property? You bought another multifamily then that was larger, right? I did 22 units, not much larger. And that was with the folks that run our Cleveland multifamily and more chapter. So yeah, this one, I, I don't have as much detail out. I'm a smaller partner in this deal because they needed, again, they needed a part of the team, right? They needed yep. some, some liquidity. They needed some net worth. They needed that sort of thing. So I got in on that deal for a smaller percentage, you know, have my share in it, but we get a weekly update on what's going on. I'm actually able to be fairly passive with that, but it's That's a nice right. value at play. Again, I know this person that, you know, we have a lot of people that come to us with, Hey, can you sponsor this deal? Can you sponsor that deal? But, you know, very, very selective with saying, no, I'll sponsor this deal because I know the person, I know the market, I know the asset. And that's what we got into with the, set, with the next deal. Cool. Where's that one located at? Just out of curiosity. Cleveland, just outside oh, of Cleveland, okay. Ohio. Same. Yeah, about two very hours cool. from me. Very cool. All right, man, this has been, uh, it's been good. And we're, we're slowly wrapping things up here. Uh, a couple of thoughts before we get out of here, though, and before we get into the famous four, I'm wondering who are, you know, leading both like the, the multifamily and more group I know you're also leading a new, uh, you have a new thing, which we'll talk about a little bit later. What was it called? The thing through GoBundance? Oh, uh, Emerge. GoBundance Emerge. Emerge. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk. Yeah, we can definitely talk more about that. And Emerge is, you know, a largely a goal setting mindset thing. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for people who are thinking, you know, I don't set a lot of goals. I'm not a big goal setting person. I really want to take, I want something different on my life though. Like what, what's kind of like the process you tell people to go through who are just getting started with their real estate journey and they need some structure to that? Yeah, you you have to have a vision and it doesn't have to be perfect. And I would say to you, take the how out of the vision. So many visions that I see are like, I'm going to have this, that, and the other by investing in, you know, multifamily properties. Like, no, no, take that part out. Take that out. Just just what's your vision? You know, you got to be somewhat realistic, but at the same time, dream a little bit. Like uh, I'm going to own a $5 million home in six months. Like eh, maybe not if you're not, you know, already in a position to buy that $5 million home. But if your goal is to live on, the beach of, to live in Maui, to live, you know, like you, uh, Brandon, then put that in your vision, right? And every day you should set that vision, look at it and then let it go. Forget about it after that. Just every day, recall it, but don't, don't, don't dream all day. Now you got to take action. So the first thing is you have to have a vision. 
The second thing is you need to be able to outline your goals specifically, like what goals that you need to accomplish to achieve that vision. And I love breaking it down to now kind of goal setting to the now. So in two years, I need to X. So this is my goal for two years. So in one year to hit the two year, I got to do this. That's my goal this quarter for this year. I got to do this this month for this quarter to achieve that goal all the way down to, well, right now, what do I need to do? I need to open a Facebook group so that I can start inviting people to create my, my community or whatever the case may be. So you got to have the vision that compels you. You got to have the goals that really kind of, uh, that, that set the, the measure for you. And they need to be measurable. There's a big distinction between intentions and goals. Like I want to be a better husband is an intention, yep. but you can make that a goal. Like I'm going to take my wife out on 26 dates this year. Yeah. Does it make you the best husband in the world? Maybe, maybe not, but it's the right, it's, it's a goal. It's a measurable that you can track and look at consistently to get you toward that goal. And then thirdly, you have to have a mechanism by which you recall and look at your goals consistently and you plan out the next week, the next month, or whatever the case may be. Every Sunday I sit down, my wife knows this. I leave for an hour or two. I go sit down and I look at my week. I look at, okay, what do I got to do this week to achieve this month's goals? What do I got to do this month then to achieve this quarter's goals? And I do that every week religiously to make sure that I'm uh, make sure I'm tracking in the right way. People just don't, I didn't spend the time on this. I didn't learn this until joining GoBundance, which is why I'm like so passionate about this whole goal setting thing. And, you know, I did a webinar with David Osborne for those that don't know, he's uh, you know, private jet millionaire, right? Like yeah, he's, yeah. he's, you know, big, big millionaire, uh, New York times, best-selling author and all that stuff. But we did this webinar where he went through his goal setting exercises. And I mean, I'm hosting it, but I'm just listening to this guy, give more and more information. And yeah. I just took a ton from it, but I think you have to be intentional. I think you have to have a vision that compels you and you have to systematically have a habit that makes you recall your goals. But the vision, the vision has to be something you look at each morning. I do it with part of my morning routine. That's my vision. And then I'm done. I'm on to action from that point on. And it's amazing how those visions start to kind of come true as you take that action over time, that little 1% change each day, it drives you there. Get a little excited about this. Sorry about that. Me too. No, me too. This is good. This is great. This is great. All right, so with that said, let's move over to the next and last segment of the show. It's time for our Famous Four. This is the Famous Four. It's the part of the show where we ask the same four questions to every guest every week. But before we ask Jamie his questions, let's hear what's going on this week around the Bigger Pockets Podcast Network. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Tony from the Real Estate Rookie Show. I just wrapped up one of the best episodes I've recorded if you're looking for motivation and inspiration on how to get started. Episode 47 of the Real Estate Rookie Show with Andres He shares his story about how he immigrated from the Dominican Republic to America with only $500 in his pocket and how he built a portfolio of seven units in less than a year. He's got a really cool story about how he's using other people's money, how he's managing his rehabs, how he's now transitioned into developing land. He's got a really cool story. So if you're interested in hearing, head over to Real Estate Rookie Show 47. All right. And that said, let's get to... The famous four. Jamie, this yes. one's for you. Number one, favorite real estate related book. I, I, I struggled with one, so I'm going to give you two. The okay. first one is uh, the the best ever, what is it? The best ever apartment syndication book yeah, Joe by Fairless, Joe right. Fairless. Yeah, great book because it's, yep. yes, it's very tactical. Yes, it gets into syndication. It dumbs it down. But for me, like chapter three or so gets into thought leadership, right? He That's a big component of Joe's whole vision. In fact, I interviewed him on only that, on thought leadership, that's because cool. it's so, such a compelling thing. So that's one. The other one, I think uh, for multifamily investors looking to jump from like that duplex to multifamily, I love Wheelbarrow Profits. It just, it talks about the simplicity of the mom and pop model. So call, shout out to my boy, Gino. <laughs> All right. 
Does Joe Fairless have like a best ever cookbook, best ever fitness book, <laughs> best ever comic book, best ever undies, best ever yeah. everything? Yes. Yeah, I got you a pair just... on right now. They are comfortable. They are the, they're the best, best ever. ever. Yeah. They're the best ever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is your favorite business book? Again, I, I'm I don't like just one, so I'm going to give you two here. And I don't know if you call them business books, but they're more mindset. The first one uh, by far is Outwitting the Devil. A huge, huge fan of that Napoleon Hill book. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, I have it, but I never finished it. I started it and I, I never finished it. Well, you need to finish. Not it, from Brandon. yeah, not from lack of liking it. It was great. I just like somehow set it down and never picked it back the up. Devil again. got you not to read it. Devil it got was, me not to read it. It was foundational me. for. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird read in the way it's laid out, but it's uh, it's foundational for Think and Grow Rich. So that was a big mindset book for me. The other one, I, I, I've really gotten into biographies. And the one I read recently that I love is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the yeah, Nike story. Right. So many business lessons you can glean from that, you know, go on for days. So that's, the, I consider that a business book that's taught me quite a bit. When you read uh, Outwitting the Devil, was it anything like the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis in format? Uh, you, I don't know that language you just spoke. No, I, I, what, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> Different uh, book. It's, it's somewhat somewhat similar david i guess okay. yeah it's 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 got a it's written from the perspective of the opposition you're getting into their head so to speak he interviews the devil in his own yeah. way like he's actually uh-huh. speaking to the devil so the book is written almost like an interview format but yeah he's he's essentially understanding not to give the whole book away but like the devil's true crime the devil i say in air quotes like it yeah, doesn't have yeah. to be a religious thing but the devil's true way of getting people it's not like burning in hell over over killing or whatever it's making them drift through life it's mm, yeah. it's like you know suppressing taking desire taking away intention yeah and it was just a really really well laid out book and again i think it i think it sets up think and grow rich well That's awesome all right so what are some of your hobbies yeah, I have a couple. It's funny. I, I feel like I do this a lot. So, but a couple mm-hmm. hobbies and it's, so I'm a big football fan. My Buffalo Bills are actually good this year. So I'm excited <laughs> about that, but I haven't watched a game in a are few years. Are the Bills years. still playing? I didn't even know they were still a team. I'm going to bypass that. <laughs> I haven't watched a game in a few years because I have young kids and it just felt like a waste of three hours I could be spending with them. Yeah. But the five-year-old is starting to watch. So I'm starting ah, to watch nice. again with him. So that hobby's back. The other one, I love spinning. And I have kind of a, a warped mind, like you go spinning, not like yeah. sewing things, but go to a spin class. So I, I take the spin instructor's quotes. I twist them to be a little yep. bit less than what they're supposed <laughs> to be. And I post them on Facebook all the time. People get a lot of joy out of it. It so makes, I enjoy me, doing it makes it. me smile whenever I see them. It's, it's pretty <laughs> good. Give us an good. example of one. Now we need to hear. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. All right. I don't know. So, so in spinning, you have a, a resistance knob, right? Okay. So you have to turn the resistance knob, but the instructor may say something like, come on, reach down and turn that knob. I can see you. That just cracks me up. Yeah. So I put that out on Facebook, you know, <laughs> with a little people, innuendo. If yeah. You will. People. Yeah. You, you, make, you crack this me up what? quite a bit. Too, too much. Facebook. Sorry. No. Did, I, did I go all no, right? No, no, what's your, uh, what's your handle? If people want to follow you now and they want to read these. <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Instagram at the Jamie Gruber. It's been a while because our spin studio has been closed down recently, mm-hmm. but I'll start up again, hopefully mid January, fish to get opens up, but at the Jamie Gruber everywhere you can find, you can find those. That's awesome. All right. Last question for me. What do you think separates successful real estate investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? I think it's a couple of things. I think we, and we mentioned it. One is they don't have clearly defined goals, which we go back to that vision and setting goals. They just don't take the time to truly define their goals. Uh, there's a stat, and I did, David said this in the webinar that I mentioned, 95% of people don't set goals. 95% of millionaires do, right? So there's a, there's a clear distinction between, you know, if you're a millionaire and you're doing well, you have goals. So that's one. The second one is, 
and I'm, I'm guilty of this. Bigger Pockets is a tremendous value as far as a podcast. But I think some people, when they listen to the podcast over and over, they hear the mistakes everybody makes and they make an endless checklist of go through a deal and make sure I don't make all these mistakes. And so they find one little one little thing. And it's like, oh, can't do this deal. But it's like, yeah. that's not a deal killer. Yeah. It's just something you have to be mindful of. So doing a deal. And I don't say that flippantly, like just go buy something. Not, not at all. Buy, you know, Write the numbers down, make sure it pencils out. And then with your best knowledge, buy the thing, understanding, like I said before, you're probably going to lose on that first deal, or you're going to lose some at some point on that mm. first deal, but you gain in knowledge. What you gain in knowledge and experience is, is exponential. So yeah, maybe there's an analogy of you're at the top of a hill. You want to go snowboarding. You're going to fall going down that hill. You are not going to have fun on your first time, you don't want to go to a black diamond. You don't want to die on your snowboard. But yeah. if you can figure out a way to mitigate the way that you're going to take those bumps, you'll learn snowboarding. And then there's people that absolutely love it. That's a great analogy. Wow. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. I, I, analogy if I don't come up with them, then bigger pocket said that they're going to replace me with yep. like a uh, Drew Carey or Steve Harvey or one of those guys. Wow. That BP is rolling. Shows. <laughs> Steve Harvey in here. Good so for there's you. a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jamie. Last you question. Steve Harvey me. on the podcast. That'd be an amazing episode. That would be. I don't see how that if, wouldn't be entertaining. Yeah. If right? anybody knows Steve Har Harvey or Drew Carey, we will take either of them as a guest on the podcast. Thank you. The price is right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Last question. Last question. Tell us where people can find out more about you. Yeah. So I mentioned a couple of things. So for Multifamily More, check us out on Instagram at Multifamily More. You can do that anywhere on YouTube, on Facebook at Multifamily More, but follow us on Instagram there. Uh, I mentioned, I'm really excited about this GoBundance Emerge program. For those that are familiar with GoBundance, it's the tribe of millionaires, right? I'm lucky to be a part of that tribe, but this is the first time that I think GoBundance has ever offered anything for somebody to become a millionaire as opposed to having to be one first. So uh, you can go to GoBundance.com slash goals. And there's a great webinar that I did with David. I mentioned already uh, that you can watch and he goes through his goal setting exercise which is, he shows his book, his, all of his goal. I mean, it's really, really tactical. So gobundance.com slash goals. You can check it out there. That's awesome, man. Really appreciate it. And look forward to you doing that and uh, just provide so much value for people in all your communities. You got multiple communities here and you're, uh, you're awesome, man. So appreciate yeah, having you on the show today. That. Thank you. Yeah. So, no, thanks for having me guys. Thank you. David Green, you want to get us out of here? This is David Green for Brandon Cash Growth Turner signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leka Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. 
Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.